welcome to this special episode of Crop It Like It's Hot in conjunction with Arable Weed Month, which is sponsored by Bayer and Syngenta and brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show. To find out more about the event, read the 24-page special Arable Weed Month Focus magazine and watch advice and case study videos, please visit the website www.croptechshow.com forward slash awm. You can also follow the event on Twitter by using the hashtag AWM22. Alongside me, Alice Dyer, my colleague Molly Leach will also be hosting today's episode. As always, one CPD point is available for tuning in. Just email your basis account number and the podcast title to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Now, it wouldn't be a weed event without the man himself, Nayab John Cussins, to update us on everything we need to know on weed management. So I'm very pleased to introduce him as our first guest today. Ambassador is a consistently high yielding variety, which has been proving itself on farms across the UK for the past three years. A fully loaded hybrid, which offers growers security in achieving high yields through Limograin's trait stacking approach. Ambassador combines genetic traits, including resistance to TUYV and pod shatter that are essential on farm. For more information on this and the rest of our portfolio, visit www.lgseeds.co.uk forward slash crops forward slash oilseeds. Hi John, great to have you. So John, there's a lot of um, change in agriculture that could affect weed control, you know, from the climate to resistance to certain chemistry um, and also changes in the way that we farm. So I'm interested to know, you know, how that's kind of affecting our weed populations. Um, First of all, farmers are turning to, you know, reduced tillage or zero tillage. And so how is that affecting the growth habits of the weeds that we're used to seeing? So, you know, things like black grass. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, those trends towards reduced tillage tend not to be happening in isolation. They tend to be part of a, um, a system change involving more diverse cropping and perhaps plus and minus cover cropping. Um, but we're definitely seeing uh, already an impact of reduced cultivation practice on old-fashioned existing weeds that we're used to seeing in the field, um, encouraging certain species that have perhaps gone off the radar for a while. We're seeing definitely seeing more and more brome species out there, um, both the things like the sterile brome, the Anasanthus sterilis, but also... To my mind, probably a little bit more, we're seeing those meadow brome, rye brome, bromus, saccharinus, rye brome in particular. So we're seeing um, within the typically grass weeds that we're used to seeing uh, trends, but also in the detail, the lack of cultivation actually as part of the drilling operation has a direct impact on... um, the way that we're seeing germination patterns in the field. So obviously, soil movement or cultivation has lots of different functions when it comes to weed management. We're burying weed seeds, we're having direct mechanical weed control, but also that soil movement is encouraging weed seeds to germinate. And the lack of soil movement around drilling, that lack of encouragement for weed seeds to germinate 
is meaning that you know we're seeing slightly more staggered germination patterns in in weeds that we're like black grass probably Italian ryegrass as well that we're used to seeing come up as a big bang around the drilling date and that has an impact on having to think a little bit more about um we control through the whole of the autumn rather than maybe front loading in the way that we have been but i think you know with the the changes that are happening around changes in cultivation um, approaches we've really got to focus on the fact that this is a, a system-wide change and perhaps some of the changes elsewhere in the rotation are also having a profound effect so we're seeing more and more issues around broadleaf weed management in these systems where we've got more diverse crops tend to have more diverse weeds so lots more questions coming in about ground soil control may we control poppy control which perhaps up until a few years ago we may be forgotten about as arable weeds so it's definitely a um a changing time in terms of priority for weed management um monitoring getting that information about how weeds are changing on farm in response to the changes we're seeing in, in agronomy yeah and you mentioned um you know seeing more broadleaf weeds and different types of weeds um but what about emerging weeds so weed species that we're maybe not so familiar with yeah i mean it, it we are really genuinely seeing weeds which have previously probably been excluded by the cultivation the intensity and frequency of cultivation um coming in and becoming quite characteristic of no-till systems so species like birch herbal and triscus corcoris um on the broadly weed side and then it's a grass weed things like raptail fescue which is a vulpia species and these are both examples of species which are pretty widely distributed and quite frequent in natural and semi-natural habitats in all those marginal areas around fields but as soon as you drop the cultivation intensity and specific especially if you go to no-till really minimum cultivations they're invading the cropped area and and they can actually be quite difficult weeds to control in practice so i think you know whilst one of the things which the question which often comes up is oh how is changing practice going to affect black grass and italian ryegrass and all these existing weeds one of the main ways that we're one of the main trends that we're seeing is actually that the changing systems are uh, are selecting for weeds but they're actually selecting on a species level so we're seeing a whole range of other weeds come in in true no-till systems you start to see the emergence of perennial weeds that are reflecting that lack of cultivation so you know one of the things which i'm really keen to get across to growers was thinking about a transition towards conservation agriculture or to be on a journey towards reducing their cultivation intensity is that a really important part of that transition of that journey is an increased um, understanding monitoring and increased focus on weed management and the weeds that they're trying to manage because we're certainly just beginning to see those changes that focus on different weeds that we've not really seen as arable weeds in the past but but once they become established in these systems they, they can actually be very difficult to control 
And you've been doing a fair bit of work on Burcherville recently. So did you want to just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so Burcherville's really interesting. Well, you know, I probably would say that. (laughs) You know, really small seeds, so had been excluded um, by the sort of cultivations that we traditionally use, but very invasive. Uh, The Burcherville, which is one of a whole number of these umbelliferies, so they're umbelliferate umbelliferous plants uh, alongside things like cow parsley and wild carrots so and often it's the lack of id that perhaps make it go under the radar initially um it's an autumn germinating weed so if you are having problems with those umbelliferous spring cropping it's probably not birch it's probably something like wild carrot and so one of the things that we are um worried about and we should be worried about with birch herbal is how reliant we are on sulfonylurea herbicide chemistry to get control in practice. So one of the reasons why we control for some of these broadleaf weeds and you can bring in some of the existing weeds as well is the problem is that we're, we're trying to do all our weed control in the spring in autumn sown crops on plants that are really quite well established in a, a, an application window that can be really quite difficult. You know, early on, the temperatures can't uh, are often not high enough to get the sort of growth in the weed that we need to get good herbicide activity. Obviously, later on, the weeds become too large to get consistent control. So it, it can be quite a difficult window to get control. And one of the reasons why we're so reliant on that window is that we've got very little control of these weeds in the autumn. You know, we you can be spending quite a lot of money to manage grass weeds in the autumn and get no control of something like bird shervil. And then it means we're really reliant on sulfonylureas in the spring to get control. And what we're doing initially is we've, uh, we went out and, and got hold of 30 different populations of bird shervil. And the first thing, first order of business, um, which we're doing right now in the lab actually, is to do some screening work just to get a baseline of sulfonylurea sensitivity. Um, because that's where, in terms of herbicides and herbicide resistance, that's really where the risk is. Uh, and then also, while we've got the seeds, uh, collections of seeds, we're doing a little bit of work on seed biology, what sort of environmental conditions are um, triggering germination and establishment, see if that gives us a little bit more information about how we might manage them. Uh, but really, just like in practice, we, we don't have a lot of experience with a weed, we don't have a great knowledge base. The same is true in weed biology as well. We don't actually know some of the basics of these species, so that's... Uh, first order of business definitely one to keep an eye out for then definitely and as i say you know part of this journey part of this transition is definitely going to be more uh, of an understanding of the weeds that are going on in the weeds that are emerging as problems in the field yeah and going back to you know things like black grass we've obviously developed really quite good cultural control strategies um now Black grass is, is quite a clever weed, isn't it? It can kind of adapt to its conditions quite well. Could it be that, you know, black grass might be able to start to adapt to, you know, things like um, later drilling or spring cropping and things like that? Yeah, I mean, that's it, it's shown itself, you know, not uniquely, but very capable of, of uh, adaptation and selection, you know, depending on the way that we change certainly herbicide practice. Um, certainly 
there's the potential for it to adapt to changing uh, agronomy systems. But I, I think really, the, so we, we, we change the way that we're growing the crops and rotations, and then that selects for the weeds, which become problematic in the crops. The, the first way that selection happens is on the species level. So if you go from a system that's all early established autumn cropping with a kind of mixing cultivation system to something that's got, you know, much less cultivation, no till, drill, certainly around drilling and a lot of spring cropping, the first thing you'll do is select for different weed species. I mean, maybe the longer term threat is that some of these um, problematic weeds in the, in sort of that have become a problem in contemporary systems adapt and become problems in those systems. But the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to see different weeds come to the fore. So, you know, initially uh, weeds that we've um, got you seen around the farm, like bromes, become more of an issue. And maybe the black grass becomes less of an issue. Uh, things like Italian ryegrass, particularly difficult to manage in those no-till systems. Um, become a problem and then we get these emerging weed problems and whilst I'm not I, I wouldn't dismiss the possibility that you could select for example for more spring germinating black grass I think it, to some extent it sort of misses the point of what the real first order change is going to be you know it, we can and have adapted the way that we grow crops to really reduce uh, problems from black grass in the crops that we're growing um, and that that change um, potentially the black grass could adapt and overcome those changes but I really think that the bigger issue that people need to be awake to is the emergence of different weed problems. And then going on to the climate that's obviously changing as well um, so is that likely to affect kind of what we see in the field in terms of weeds? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. We, you know, part, again, you know, we're changing so many things all at the start, or potentially changing. Yeah. Some. At the same time, we've, we've got different crops, and we're trying out different crops. You know, that maybe have been not typical in in different parts of the UK, but are grown elsewhere in Europe, for example. One of the things that we we need to be really aware of is biosecurity around maybe more exotic weeds in terms of. Um, the influence of climate change. So we might we as part of this movement towards a conservation ag, uh, regenerative agriculture, exploring a much more diverse range of crops is very much part of the, that journey, that transition. Thinking about growing crops which maybe are grown elsewhere in the world, whether it's southern Europe or, or Asia or other part, you know, quite exotic parts of the world sometimes. Um, that haven't been traditionally grown in the UK. Um, one of the, the things we really need to focus on is biosecurity around some of the, those crop seeds and, and potentially bringing in the weeds from those other areas. And then as the climate might change, some of the patterns that we've got moving towards you know, warmer winters and you know, maybe wetter, colder summers or whatever the climate change might bring, you know, alongside this biosecurity risk around bringing all these um, crop seeds in, we need to be aware that there are weeds in those parts of the world 
associated with oak crops that, that if they become established in the UK, they're really going to take up the challenge of wheat management to another level. So we're already seeing hints of that. So uh, barnyard grass, which is a kind of clover, is a globally, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible weed, terrifying weed. It's C4, so it's and tends to be associated with things like maize cropping and, and uh, crops in hotter climates. The number of examples of barnyard grass, grass coming in as a contamination of game cover crops, where it's mistaken for the millet content, is absolutely eye-watering. So we've already got a situation where we have a, a weed commonly being imported into the, into the UK, which globally is a really problematic weed. If we, alongside that, shift the cropping and maybe go to more late-drilled spring crops and then have um, some higher temperatures, you've got all the raw ingredients for a, a really difficult weed problem. We're also beginning to see some parasitic weeds being um, brought onto farms as a failure of biosecurity. So, again, we're changing so many things all at once. We're using a lot more legumes, whether they're... they're as part of a cover crop, companion crop, or even buy crop, um, relay crop uh, approaches. Though we, you know, we're not producing enough seed of these species domestically, so the seed is coming in. I think maybe if I was critical, I'd say that the biosecurity around non-crop seed is maybe not elevated to the level it is with crop seeds and we're beginning to see things like orobanchi cronata which is um, a parasitic weed that's associated with with legume uh, crops we're beginning to see seeing bodder on several farms that have come in, in in batches of fetch seed that's fine okay they're isolated examples but if we've got those three elements we um change the cropping and bring these these plants onto the farm we have a failure of biosecurity, so alongside them, we're bringing some of these weeds um, from where the seed's being produced, and then we change the climate. Those three things together are the risk. So I think it's it's not how climate might affect our existing weed problems is probably not the focus. I think in that area, uh, the focus has really got to be on looking out for exotic weeds um, as they're brought in failure to biosecurity around all this non-crop seed, which is increasingly coming onto farm. Yeah, there's quite a lot of factors there then to consider. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we talked about in, in terms of how you, you start by asking how does no-till affect weeds, actually no-till is only one small element of the change that's happening. Yeah. You know, doing lots of sort of reductionist thinking about how is no-till going to affect in, you know, weeds which are existing problems is probably not the way to go in terms of the weed biology that we need to do. We need to take a much more holistic view of all of the changes that are happening and understand how all those changes impact on not just individual weed, but the whole collection of weeds that we've got in the UK. Yeah. So, it's a, you know, it's a really exciting time challenging time um exciting just, to be a weed biologist <laughs> exciting to be a weed biologist it's a wonderful um subject to be involved with but it is particularly exciting at the moment yeah 
And you mentioned um, kind of European weeds. Am I right in thinking that rat's tail fescue is a weed, you know, more commonly seen in Europe that's now emerging a bit here? Uh, definitely, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is associated with herbicide production. So where herbicide production is a big, bigger sector, so probably Denmark would be the place to point to, it, it's, it's for several years it's been a significant weed. Um, it has tended to be a problem in places where um, the adoption of conservation agriculture has been about soil moisture conservation management. So um, Australia, South America, places like that. Um, but as we bring, not for the same reasons, but as we bring those um, cultivation approaches into the UK, we, we see it come to the UK. But that's quite a different problem in that it's... Uh, a widely distributed species within the UK, probably, you know, it's in field margins and people are not spotting it or on, you know, disturbed parts of the farm. And then it's invading into the cropped area. It's not quite the same as some of these exotic weeds that are being obviously imported with crop seed or, or maybe even with plants coming into the UK. And that different problem means that we, we, we probably need to have, think about it differently in terms of um, how we're going to protect ourselves from it in systems. You know, with something like bird shovel or vulpia, which, as I say, is, is very common in natural, semi-natural habitats. Really, the way that growers are going to have to address this is if they go to a no-till system is just to be so on the ball in terms of spotting these individual plants very early on yeah. and adapting their herbicide practice and almost trying to um, prevent the weed from becoming a, a larger problem, but accept that it will be part of part of the, the ongoing weed management as part of the system. And we've got some quite exciting um, new herbicides coming on the market in the near future. How do you think these will fit in with, um, you know, kind of existing chemistry that we have and cultural controls that we're using? Yeah, I mean, we, we have, I mean, we are in a, um, also a time of great change in terms of certainly for grass weeds. So we've already had seen a clonophen come from Bayer, which is a new mode of action in for grass weed controlled cereals, um, in a, a matter of weeks, if not months, certainly for the next growing season, we're going to have, uh, Simethylids, we have a Luxemo herbicide from BSF, which is a fantastic grass weed herbicide for um, black grass and Italian ryegrass, maybe not so for some of the other weeds. And then in, in a few years' time, uh, there's something which goes by the brand of Isoflex from FMC uh, initially, which is Pixazone, already launched in Australia as a, a ryegrass herbicide. So actually, we've got three new actives, three actual new modes of action in, in serial cross-feeders um, we're going to get to the point where actually we have seven modes of action. So we have seven whole different families of herbicides, not just actives, for managing weeds like blackgrass and Italian ryegrass in cereals, um, which, I mean, that's got to be as many as we've ever had, actually. Look back on it. So yeah. we certainly got tools to manage these these weeds. It's important to say that where herbicide resistance 
is affecting herbicides. Initially, at least, it, they affect the post-emergence part of the herbicide program primarily. So your FOPs and DIMs and DENs like Axial, your ALS herbicides like Atlantis, Broadway Star, um, stop giving the same weak controls I have in the past. So we've become incredibly reliant on, a, on what's an increasingly wide base, but we're increasingly, we're, we're reliant on this um, whole family of pre-emergence herbicides where to get the, most, the best out of them, we really need to be applying them very uh, tight to the drilling or very soon after drilling. And that is a challenge because a couple of months into growing a, a winter wheat crop, for example, your you know your opportunity to use effective herbicides is pretty much done and that's a challenge you know that is a challenge so new herbicide chemistry not just new actives but new chemistry is really what we need right now to manage some of these existing weeds help us on this transition but they're not coming into a sort of you know they're coming into a a, a weed controlling crop situation which is pretty challenging they're not fundamentally changing that challenge they're not going to be transformational perhaps in the way that um, when we got fops and dims and some of the early wild herbicides atlantis of course completely transformed uh we control in the crop they're not that transformational but they're really important building blocks to put together sustainable herbicides but I think because of that, because they're, they're new chemistry, but they're coming into the existing um, scenario where we're very reliant on this whole family of preems, the weed management element that I think we've made an awful lot of progress on for things like blackgrass and Italian ryegrass, that integrated weed management using culture control, often using, you know, mechanical approaches alongside hand roguing that focus shouldn't can't be lost we can't think that these new herbicides no matter how effective they are um are gonna transform weed control we still need good integrated weed management good monitoring resistance management all of those other elements that i think we've got an awful lot better of as better at as an industry are still going to be really important going forward because whilst we are, uh, you know, at a high point in terms of having herbicide chemistry for grass weeds, we need to stay there. We need to sustain all of these different products and, and use them in combination to protect each other. And then broaden that thinking to use a diversity of different approaches, whether they're rotational management, um, you know, adopting new uh, and novel certainly to the uk more mechanical weeding physical weed control approaches whether it's inter cultivation or the surfing approaches like zern's top cut and collect or the weed seed mills like you know redicott's bringing in a seed mill all of these things need to be part of weed management in the future because as i say you know it, it really comes home to me how important weed management is going to be in this transition and in changing the way that we're growing crops to move towards something which is more uh, conservation, regenerative agriculture. And 
on that journey, we really can't be, you know, whilst we're letting go of some existing practices, whether it's ploughing or um, we're, you know, moving away from existing cropping systems and perhaps losing some of our herbicide tools to herbicide resistance, we've also got the opportunity to bring in lots of different uh, options as well. Yeah, I think, you know, attitudes to herbicides have changed so much as well. They're kind of, you know, they're very much part of the solution now rather than a solution. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, it is, I mean, it's wonderful to see, you know, at launch for a major um, new mode of action, the new chemistry for grass weed control. You know, even the companies who are producing and, and marketing these herbicides are talking about them as part of an element of an integrated weed management strategy. And that's certainly not been the case for, you know, herbicides that we've had launched in the past. And I think that does reflect our changing attitude. You know, that's what people expect from uh, herbicide manufacturers now. Yeah. And kind of looking into your crystal ball, what do you think the future of weed control might look like? Is it going to be, you know, we've got all, all these robotics coming to the fore now. Um, some people are looking at bioherbicides or maybe, you know, data. How do you think we're going to manage weeds going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is a... It is crystal ball gazing a little bit, isn't it? And that probably means it's entirely futile. But, you know, and obviously the, the further into the distance you try and imagine, the, more, the less likely you are to be anywhere near accurate. But I think the, the future of weed control is, is going to be more diverse than it is at the moment. We're going to have to adopt a whole, um, or certainly explore the adoption of a whole range of different um, approaches non-chemical approaches alongside this new herbicide chemistry. I mean, in the short term, because it's, it's easier to see things uh, in the near future than it is to imagine the long term. In the short term, we're going to see uh, mechanical direct weed control in the crops change, and we're going to see things like interro uh, precision weeding, uh, mechanical weeding. We're going to see things like weed surfers, um, like the top cut and flat, we're going to see seed mills in places being deployed, um, chaff carts and plates and trying to manage weed seeds which survive herbicides uh, alongside the existing herbicide chemistry. Uh, and that's, that's challenging because it's likely that just with herbicides, different direct mechanical weed control approaches are going to be um, differentially effective against different weed species. So at the moment, our job is to try and characterise and work out uh, how these different uh, novel weed control approaches are going to act on different weed species. In the, you know, in the longer term, the you know the automation, the autonomous robotic type technology, um, you know, it's. it's it's almost, the potential is almost difficult to imagine and envisage, isn't it? But, you know, if you can develop a system of small, autonomous fleet of robots, the transformation in, in not just weed management, but all crop management is just, you know, unimaginable. Whether we 
are going to need weed experts in the future is probably uh, probably not the case. I think right, the challenge is okay. You can imagine a future in which um, we could take pesticides out of the system and just have fleets of robots going around. And you know, once you've got small autonomous robots going around the field they're proximal to the weed you probably don't need a herbicide you can just do have direct weed control on an individual weed basis um but how far away that is and what sort of investment will be required and what sort of farm and crop you know what sort of farm ownership structure what sort of financial structure for growing crops works in that system is also up for debate you know it, Will individual growers be investing in this equipment in the way that they're buying or, or leasing tractors and combines and buying equipment? Or will it be a service which takes a lot of the work out of the individual's hands? It's in the transition towards the future, as we have more autonomy and more robots and more uh, and different opportunities to do weed control, we got this hybrid system in which we try and get the best out of the existing chemistry and then uh, bring in these different approaches to get, get a sustainable uh, management point of view much quicker. You know, we, we the re, the, and to me, the reality is you we are using herbicides, certainly in grass weeds, we're using those herbicides at maximum efficiency when they're used early on on small weeds. When the weeds get larger, you know, it, it is disproportionately expensive and very inefficient to chase after large weeds with the herbicide chemistry that we've got available to us. And it's controlling those individuals which escape that, that most efficient use of herbicides, which are the first I think model for how we think about we bring in some of this technology onto farm and then you know the the transition to a, a future of entirely autonomous robots going around doing weed control will be long after i've retired and therefore i don't worry about it do you reckon oh i mean it, it's 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 difficult i mean it, you know don't get me wrong, I'm a very old man now, and the race <laughs> change in the world. I mean, I, I, I listen to the radio, and, you know, Boris Johnson has been censored for something, and then I listen to the radio on the way home, and it turns out he's done something else. So <laughs> I, I find it very hard to keep up, even with current affairs, let alone. Um, but, still, you know, it, I think it's very difficult to judge how quickly you can go from the existing prototype stage to a commercial, viable commercial business, which is financially attractive to a grower. Yeah. You know, we don't, you know, because in order to understand that, you need to understand what is the, you know, what finances on farm going to look like, you know. <laughs> you know, if um, petroleum-based agrochemicals become disproportionately expensive, then it's obviously going to accelerate a transition. If that, the, you know, the, short-term crisis in, in oil and petroleum dies back, then, you know, don't get me wrong, herbicides, incredibly cheap and cost-effective means of weed control. You know, there is a reason why we stopped having fields and, you know, employing an awful lot of labour often to do weed control, because herbicides are incredible, you know, 
in terms of their efficiency and cost effectiveness if that changes it accelerates the change to something else um yeah it's it's yeah and also all the infrastructure that needs to be in place for a you know just like self-driving cars i think we think we're on the cusp of a self-driving car revolution but you think of all of the legal infrastructure all of the physical infrastructure all of the investment that's got to take place yeah. before we there. you know in the transitions likely to be messy isn't it where you've got you know in the case of cars you're going to have to have autonomous vehicles in a mixed space with you know me and you driving our old bangers around yeah that's more challenging than just everything being computerized and i think you know the, this the future of weed control, as I say, is going to be more diverse and and conceptually probably get a bit messy as we try and work out how we're going to initially include these technologies and then presumably as they become cheaper, think about how we might rely on them for weed control in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you want me to say? I don't know. I didn't really... <laughs> predict how what we control would look like now five years ago so asking me to predict what it looked like in another <laughs> is probably like the futile we'll stay positive about it though yeah and I, I think that is important i think you know even the the the, the changes in the weed flora which come about as a result of a you know all of those changes in conservation agriculture the tillage change the the use of different cover companion crops, those sort of approaches, the diversity of crops that we're growing, um, even bringing livestock into the system, all of those changes, changing the weed flora, it's not necessarily a bad thing if we're expected to use our fields to also support biodiversity alongside those non-cropped areas on the farm. You know, the, the weeds are the vehicle by which we're going to deliver that. Yeah. So, you know, everything's, all this changes, you've got to see it as a positive rather than, you know, rather begrudgingly accept it's going to happen, I think. Yeah. You'll uh, do yourself in in the end. <laughs> well, we've got a lot more, you know, ability to research things and do all sorts now anyway, don't we, than we kind of used to, so I think. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And there is, you know, that we're, the financial support for innovation in agriculture is coming from a slightly different route these days. It's coming from sort of innovation, venture capital, startup um, sources rather than traditionally being sort of state funded or coming from big existing uh, agrochemical businesses. And that in itself is, is interesting, you know, bringing different people with different backgrounds into this space, people with a much more entrepreneurial innovative you know accepting that they'll try and innovate and if it fails they'll just accept that and move on and, and innovate in a different space and that in, even that in itself changing the, the the sort of people who you meet when you're you're looking at the future of weed management even that is exciting and interesting and bringing a different dynamic yeah i mean even things like that there's a lot going on out there isn't there thanks john it's been really good to chat with you and now to our listeners, I'm going to hand you over to Molly. 
thanks, Alice. And now joining us, we have Scott Coburn, who's a business manager at Syngenta. Hi, Scott. Great to have you on the podcast. And thank you for joining me. So, That's great. Thank you. So to carry on the discussion, I'm going to circle back to what Alice and John were discussing earlier. So they've just been talking about how the move to reduce tillage and the whole system change associated with it is influencing the types of weeds we're now seeing more on arable farms. Do you think that it's had any ramifications for other aspects of crop agronomy? Uh, certainly, uh, I think it, it it has definitely. It, it, it's it, it, you know I would see it's very much putting pressure on chemistry where perhaps you know there wasn't as much pressure in the past. Um, you know we're finding it much more difficult to control some of these different grass weed species with the contact uh, herbicides that we've currently got. So yeah, there's definitely I think there are some ramifications from changing. Um, primary sort of cultivation systems. And mm. um, how do you think grass weed control in particular now influences a grower's different crop establishment decisions? It, it, it's definitely a, a, a big part of their decision making, but but it's also, you know, they're looking very much at the economic side of things. Mm. Um, I think there's still uh, a bit of a feeling that that the chemical manufacturer can always pull it out of the bag and, and provide a, a chemical solution, but we know that that isn't the case. You know, certainly from our point of view at, at Syngenta, that's not the case. There isn't a chemical solution for everything now. Uh, and, you know, the farmers' goals are are, are slightly different. They're, they're looking at uh, how best to do the job economically um, and, and changing cultivation system definitely has some huge economic benefits for for a farmer, Molly. Mm -hmm. And we've had um, quite a few very wet autumns, um, which have understandably put growers on edge and pushed them to start um, drilling earlier. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering if you were able to offer any advice on when growers kind of should be aiming to get crops established this autumn in light of that. I mean that's a very that's a very difficult one to answer. You know, we see it, it usually as a knee jerk to a wet autumn. We see the following year we see um, we we you know we see this huge drive to early drilling, which um, which causes undoubtedly causes some problems. So um, it, it's really it's finding the balance. You know, if you if you drill too early, and and by that I'm thinking you know middle of September start really. Um, you know, you bring in some other problems. You know, you be worse if you drill early. Um, potentially, you're going to see more disease in your crops from drilling early. Um, there's the increased risk from from BYDV, from aphids um, at that earlier drilling period. So um, there are some downsides. There are probably also some upsides in in terms of you have a better established crop. You know, you you're you're establishing a much more competitive crop to to potentially smother out the grass weed problems a little bit. But but I think you know what we have learned in the past few years, um, and you do have to be cautious of the weather. Um, but you know, starting drilling in that sort of first week in October as your start date rather than the middle of September. Um, does offer significant benefits in, in grass weed control. Generally, you are going to um, have a few more flushes 
um, of grass weeds in your seed beds, stale seed beds that you can control with with um, glyphosate, if you like. Um, and then there's other things that we can bring in to try and um, improve establishment as we as we get slightly later in the year. Mm. So you you mentioned a couple of the a couple of factors that can help you to achieve that kind of optimum timing for drilling. So you mentioned the first week of October. Are there any other factors that impact on kind of achieving that optimum timing for drilling? Um, so. I mean, it's it, it, it's also about you have to work into your plan where you actually want to finish drilling and, and work backwards. And in many ways, that dictates your start date, if you like. So you have to think about capacity on the farm. You know, how much can you actually get drilled in a day? Um, you need to be thinking, keeping an eye on, on weather conditions in relation to what you've got drilled. Because, you know, we've seen from pre-emergence weed control, if you like, what we've learned over the last few years, is that needs to happen within 48 hours of drilling, really, for, for optimum results. So in the year that you push your drilling, um, you, you know, you're running into poorer weather conditions. At, you know, in, if you move into, say, November, um, December, you're running into poor weather conditions, and the likelihood is that you may not get your pre-emergence herbicides done in the timely fashion that you want them. And, it, you know, if we compromise pre-emergence herbicides, then we are compromising our weed control for the rest of the season, really. Yeah, so that leads quite nicely onto my next question. So you mentioned the importance of getting pre-ems on within the first 48 hours. So what's the driving force, do you think, behind growers prioritising pre-em defy herbicide treatments over post-M options, especially for effective weed control, essentially? Well, the, generally speaking, you know, pre-emergence pre gives you um, much more crop safety. Uh, and as you move into peri-emergence timing, if you like, so if your timing slip and you move into peri-emergence, um, you've got a much softer wheat plant, barley plant, whatever it is. So potentially that is, it is there's a crop safety issue there and you might find that your pre-emergence stack of herbicides may then have a, a crop effect, which could be very negative in, in the worst cases. You know, you could, you could really damage that emerging crop. Um, but we do find at that time, at that peri-emergence time, we get extremely good blackgrass control. So it's a bit of a balancing act, really. Uh, for me, I would always try to, you know, you take the efficacy and you take the crop safety bit. So pre-emergence is where you want to be. Everything else is, is a compromise, really. Um, and we know that when we get into the early post-emergence period, then we we do see a lot less performance from our, um, for our, from our active ingredients that we're putting on. Um, and in years gone by, that was fine because we could rely on, you know, good contact material. We haven't got that good contact material now. So, so put your stacks on early, big, robust stacks. You, you know, we've tended to see the more actives that you can put in there, the better result you're going to get. And, and certainly um, things like Defy do provide a, a benefit. And we've always seen a, 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 a useful performance enhancement from from using products like defy in that pre-emergence stack so um 
John Cousin said earlier in the podcast that the whole industry has had quite a shift in mindset towards um, the use of herbicides in the sense that they're now very much seen as, you know, part of the solution. Um, in light of that, what other um, IPM strategies are you pushing or would you recommend to help growers tackle grass weeds and, you know, reduce that pressure on, on chemistry? Yeah, well, for sure, there, there is a, a range of, of of sort of things that we can can be looking at. Um, you know, we we can be looking at the sort of biological disruptors, if you like, the things that interfere with um, biology to limit a weed's potential. So, looking at your cultivation and your rotation, looking at your drilling date, uh, and looking at spring cropping. That's one area. Um, having competitive crops so um so that that increases the crop's ability to outcompete the weed so things like um looking at that crop species if you like so so hybrid barley for instance we know is extremely competitive um in comparison to both conventional barley and winter wheat so a change in in crop species um, into something that is much more competitive could have a, a, a good effect there. Um, and then you could also look at cover crops, seed rates, seed treatments. Um, there's a lot of interest in, in looking at row spacing um, uh, and things like that and mechanical weeding. So there's a whole host of factors that can come into play to, to tackle that sort of integrated weed management uh, piece, if you like. Mm. So um, just to hone in on, um, you mentioned grass weed suppression with Harvey Bartley. Yeah. Um, how can growers kind of manage that to get the optimum effect there? Okay, so so our standard advice with, with hybrid barley has been um, planting at sort of 200 seeds per square metre. Um, and that's, that's really, that's advice designed at situations where grass weeds are not as important, if you like. So if you're looking at, at grass weeds as being the, the, the fundamental piece here, then we would suggest increasing seed rates up to within the sort of 225 to 250 seeds per square metre um, to give, you know, more competitive crop. Um, you know, good establishment is, is vital. And, and then at looking at, at potentially looking at seed dressings, um, to help improve establishment and rooting later on, which all helps to to create a very healthy hybrid barley crop that is going to be set up nicely. And, and then there's a range of things when we get into the spring molly that we can do um, to really to to maximise that hybrid uh, barley potential. And and fundamental to those is is nitrogen management in the spring because that's when we see the hybrid barley effect is in the spring. It's not a, it's not an autumn effect. It's it's very much a spring effect, and and, and is it's kicked off by early, well-timed applications of, of nitrogen. Great, thank you. That's um that was really useful. So, um, we're actually coming to the final question now. So there's um there's a lot going on in agriculture right now, um from you know current market forces to the government pushing to deliver public goods, and. Um, how do you see overall rotations um, changing across farms? And I guess most importantly, what impact do you think it might have on um, future grass weed management? I think you know, there is a, a huge uh, shift in, in what farmers are, are being, um, the direction that they're going in for, for sure. Um, 
widening rotations, widening serial rotations is probably a good thing because it's given the chemistry a bit of a break. Um, you know, you're not relying on that same chemistry uh, to to control several crops one after the other. So that's got to be a good thing. Um, the downside as we widen rotations is we, we bring crops into play that we've maybe not been so used to, you know, pulses, for instance. And, you know, we're seeing because of changes in, in products that we're allowed to use, you know, we're seeing very much fewer um, chemistry uh, available to us in in those crops, you know, we, so it is a bit of a challenge. Um, weed control can be a bit of a challenge in some of those other crops. That said, if they are spring crops, then we have got options around stale seed beds and, and cover crops and things like that to, to try and keep a lid on on um, on on grass weeds, mm. okay. but but you know there's big pressures on on the industry going forward definitely. Um, but what what we do now is that black grass as a species in, in particular is very good at adapting to whatever we as um, agronomists farmers do. And um, whilst we think at the minute we think spring cropping is often the the panacea. Um, Blackgrass is never very far behind in catching up with what we do to change, and it seems to change rapidly to catch up with that. Thank you for joining us today, Scott. That's great. Thanks ever so much. Next up, we have Ben Giles, who's a commercial technical manager at Bayer. Hi, Ben. Good to have you on the podcast, and thank you for joining us. No worries. Thanks, Molly. So today we're going to be talking about ryegrass and some of the challenges farmers are facing because of it. So um, last year, alongside uh, NIAB, yourselves at Bayer ran a ryegrass survey. So could you just tell me a little bit about the impetus behind this and, um, you know, why you decided to do it? Well, I think there are a number of factors. I mean, perhaps firstly, ryegrass has perhaps almost been the um, slightly overshadowed by, by blackgrass. I mean, we've all done lots and lots of work and there's always been surveys on, on blackgrass and, and ryegrass has always been there for a number of people, but, you know, it's not really been as, as much in the public eye, I suppose, as a weed as, as blackgrass has possibly because, um, you know, I, assume, I think we probably assume blackgrass is, is far more endemic to more acres than ryegrass is. Um, and that certainly is as one of the reasons for for trying to get some up to date info, particularly on on where ryegrass is perhaps a problem to people. Um, it probably is, certainly is a rising problem in in a number of areas of the country. Um, and as I said, the trouble is that there's not really been any any recent data on on you know areas where it is becoming more of an issue um, in the last few years. Um, and also. I think probably if you if you turn to the, the chemistry side of things, which of course you know we're from Bayer is is part of what we're interested in. You know, there's there's two things. Firstly, you know, our own scientists in Germany a few years ago identified that that actual proper resistance, not just reduced sensitivity, um, has occurred in in some few populations to flufenacet in ryegrass, um, and so that needed more careful training. Um, and also, you know, the good news is that there are new modes of action or modes of action here already in the last year or two that have come along that, that do have reasonable levels of ryegrass activity. So whilst we should absolutely continue with all the cultural aspects that I'm sure we'll cover 
in a minute. You know, in the chemistry sector, there are one or two good news stories as well. Um, so that tied in nicely to finding out a bit more about the weed. Yeah, so you mentioned sort of resistance of flufenicet and sort of emerging chemistry that can help us to tackle the issue of resistance in ryegrass. So just to dig a little bit deeper into the survey itself, um, could you touch a little bit more on what exactly you were trying to find out from the survey, what kind of tests you were carrying out to do this, um, just for some of the listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the key things of the survey, obviously people were very keen to, to send in their seed that was almost the, the sort of the carrot, I suppose, to to it is is because obviously seed testing normally can be quite an expensive process um, to do, um, and there was the offer there to uh, to carry out seed tests for people, um, and it obviously paid off because we got 197 samples um, come in, which um, made it a very very large survey very quickly um, for the for the colleagues at NIAB to to have to. And what alongside that. You know, there was a fairly detailed questionnaire for people to fill in of, of things we were quite interested in knowing more about. Number one, primarily, of course, where are you in the country? You know, where is this a um, problem for you? Um, which you know, gave us a, a sort of background as to you know, areas of the country that do have this as a problem. Is it just the, you know, the traditional areas of ryegrass perhaps we thought of in the past, Essex, bits of Yorkshire, places like that, or is, is it spreading? Um, one of the key bits that was of interest was what farming practices are you employing? I mean, you know, how do you cultivate? When do you normally drill your winter crops? Are you into your spring cropping? Has that increased in the last few years? Um, you know, also what else is within that rotation on your farm? Um, and you know, at the end of the day, what chemistry and how many groups of chemistry and how many times do you go through the crop with a spray? Um, and also, you know, do you still see that as successful? Is control easier than it was five years ago or more difficult? Those sort of questions, I suppose, is, is gave us a baseline of what people were up to on farm. Hmm. So what were some of the sort of key findings um, from the survey? I think the, the, the most surprising, well, was it surprising? But certainly one of the key findings was, you know, ryegrass most definitely is present across a wider part of the country than perhaps traditionally had been thought about. You know, I mentioned in the, you asked me in the previous question, and I said about Essex and bits of Yorkshire, they are still quite clearly areas where, where ryegrass is a bit of a problem. Um, but there were a number of other clusters, I suppose, like you could identify um seed samples were sent from um so you know i think john at niab john cousins at niab has identified five sort of separate areas that we're looking at in more detail i think he's called them sort of southeast which is which is essex and kent now they're areas we probably knew that there was quite a serious ryegrass problem of old um there's a sort of north which is the the traditional uh, part of central Yorkshire where we know there's been ryegrass there, but there's a definite cluster above that into North Yorkshire and Northumberland that mm. perhaps you know we wouldn't have identified before but a number of samples came in from that part of the the country um, and then another cluster identified sort of down Dorset Way where a number of samples came back from very close proximity to each other um, where perhaps we hadn't traditionally realized ryegrass was a problem previously um, and the, the sort of fifth cluster is what we called Midlands. So it was kind of, I suppose, you'd, 
say, the Northamptonshire, Oxfordshire, top end of across Shropshire, Staffordshire sort of area as well, where a number of samples also um, were sent in from. Right. So obviously, um, just to follow on from that, uh, we know that herbicide resistance is becoming an increasing problem in grass beads. So, I mean, what did the results from the, the survey show you in terms of resistance in particular um, in, you know, how we might go forward in, in tackling in tackling the issue of resistance in, in ryegrass? Yeah, well, that that's one of the most interesting bits, I think, is uh, traditionally, if you ask most people, you know, what's the resistance in ryegrass? They'd probably say, oh, it's much like blackgrass you know, similar levels of resistance to similar chemistries, things like that. And I don't think that's actually from what we found is is quite as accurate as as we might have traditionally thought. Ryegrass, I think, is a more complex beast, perhaps, in its in its patterns of resistance. Um, in that just as an example, you know, in blackgrass we probably think, ah, oh, a, a classic ladder of resistance is that you go from plants being resistant to, to ACCA's inhibitors, the likes of Topic, um, they then become resistant to Atlantis, and then you start getting reduced sensitivity to pre-M actives, such as flufenoset, pendomethylin, uh, presulfocarb, those sort of chemistries. That doesn't seem to be the case in ryegrass at all. You can have samples that are heavily resistant to flufenoset and yet completely sensitive to Atlantis. Um, and we we found examples like that within the survey. So, you know, one of them, I know you could probably ask about key take-homes in a minute, but one of the key things that it's clear you need to do if you're getting a ryegrass problem is understand your enemy and what it is sensitive and resistant to within the field. Mm. Yeah, so you sort of, um, yeah, anticipated my question there, but um, really going forward for farmers that are, are faced with, with ryegrass problems and are obviously worried about it as an emerging threat. Um, you touched on obviously uh, mentioning cultural controls and cultivation practice and that, that kind of thing, but what do you recommend would be the best course of action? I mean, first and foremost, if, you, if you're starting to see more ryegrass um, on your farm, then, then absolutely, I would say more so than perhaps other weeds, you do need to know what's going on in terms what might work chemically let alone the cultural control um, when you get to the chemistry as sort of the last part of the jigsaw um, and that means more than ever perhaps you know I'm afraid sometimes shelling out some money and getting a resistance test done um, and I would I would recommend if it's becoming a problem in in a number of fields to try and get as many sampled as possible because the other thing we we certainly see is that where you perhaps take two resistance tests on the same farm perhaps not even that far from each other within the same block you can get very different results in terms of you know their their pattern of resistance so you can't assume that by having one test done it allows you to know what's going on across a block of four or five hundred acres for example mm. yeah some really helpful advice there thank you um, and in terms of yeah just the bigger picture going forward do you think we're getting better at controlling it now um it would just be great to hear your thoughts i think it, it's a very difficult weed um i think it's got bits about it that make it far more tricky perhaps than blackgrass um for example spring cropping in my opinion and i think 
John Cousins would, would agree with me, is, is nowhere near as effective with ryegrass as it is with blackgrass because it seems to keep on germinating. Mm. Um, and we've had great success by bringing things like spring barley into rotations for, for blackgrass control. That doesn't seem to be quite as useful um, to us with, with ryegrass as the primary weed. So that, that is tricky. So there are bits that about it that, as I said, make it more difficult to control. Um, the good news is, I say, there are things here or, or coming that may help us out. Um, I'm afraid they are chemistries. I know there's not much culturally that I can say that perhaps people aren't doing already that, that might work. But, you know, there's uh, a clonifen, so uh, the likes of Precluse from, from ourselves as Bayer has come to the market. That has pretty good additional ryegrass activity. And, and to be fair, though, the chemistry from BASF, the um, synmethylene active also seems to be quite useful on ryegrass you know so perhaps where flufenacet is is less effective in places now you know partnering that with the likes of um of uh, aclonifen precluse or you know bringing in these other actives into the into the stack allows us you know hopefully um to get some better control from from our chemical programs brilliant thank you ben Thanks for tuning in to this special Arable Weed Month episode of Crop It Like It's Hot, sponsored by Bayer and Syngenta. To find out more about the event, read the 24-page special Arable Weed Month Focus magazine and watch advice and case study videos. Please visit the website at www.croptechshow.com forward slash AWM. You can also follow the event on Twitter by using the hashtag AWM22. If you want to get in touch with us, whether it's just to give feedback, perhaps suggest topics, or even speak on the podcast, we have a new email address that covers all of the Farmers Guardian Group podcasts, which is podcasts at agriconnect.com. So drop us a line anytime. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.